0: Hey everyone,
1: Sam here. So, we had a live event about biohacking last week with a bunch of amazing panelists on the secrets of immortality, and I kept getting requests to post it on our feed. So, uh here it is. It was awesome. It's on Clubhouse. We're going to do more very soon uh so hello everyone i am samuel donner and uh I, i'm the host and founder of finding founders and today we're going to do a biohacking virtual so basically we've invited the top biohackers and experts on longevity uh and people that are just working on cool projects in general around the space to speak on the subject uh and uh maybe give some nuggets of wisdom Uh, So definitely give us a follow on, on Clubhouse or on Zoom and uh, wherever, wherever we are on social. So finding founder podcast podcasts on Facebook and LinkedIn, and then um, just finding founders wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, So. The reason that we actually picked this event um, is you know, a, a bunch of different reasons, but we actually did an interview with Dave Asprey um, recently and it reminded me of all the really interesting people that I've talked to as, uh, as I've been doing Finding Founders and all the interesting people that have been in the biohacking space. Um, and Mac Davis was actually one of the first people that I interviewed uh, really delving into the, the biohacking space. And so really hyped to uh, talk more about that. We're currently on Clubhouse and Zoom. So uh, hello to everyone in each of those areas. And uh, we have five great panelists today. So we're going to start with Dalton Combs. He's going to be covering behavioral artificial intelligence and its uses in biohacking. Um, we have uh, Michael K-Manish, um, And his topic is going to be uh, open source wellness and the democratization of health. We have Mac Davis, who's going to be talking about DIY biohacking and decentralized production of gene therapies. We have Liz, Liz Parrish talking about longevity and medical tourism, and uh, finally, Dr. Michael Poulain, who is not here right now because he is on uh, Belgian time, but he's going to wake up at four a.m. Uh, in Belgium to talk about the effects of location on longevity and discovering blue zones. So he is the uh, he he was the, he was the person that basically started the research on Blue Zones, which are basically where all centurions live. And there's like a couple in the world. So we'll get to that. Um, each panelist will be presenting for about 20 minutes and then we'll have like a five minute Q&A. So uh, if you're on Clubhouse, raise your hand to speak. If you're on Zoom, uh, just type in the, the chat um, and, uh, and we can unmute you. Um, so let's kick off things by welcoming uh, a friend of the podcast, Dalton Combs, founder of Temper. I'll give a little uh, background on him. So Uh, Again, good friend of the podcast, one of the earliest guests on Finding Founders. When we first talked to him, he had founded Boundless Mind, a startup harnessing the power of persuasive AI. Since then, he's sold the company and started a new company called Temper. And with Temper, Dalton is delving into metabolic fitness and intermittent fasting. More specifically, there's this molecule called THCV and its inclusion uh, into a fasting aid product uh, product called Citraverin, which I think I'm probably butchering. Um, but it's a really awesome company and awesome project. Um, but I want to start things off with Dalton asking, um, how did you get into, uh, just like this whole space?
2: And if you... So I'm unmuted on both now. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so I'll tell you a story about how I met, uh, my current co-founder, which is why I got into metabolic fitness. So he used to sell uh, medical devices and I followed him to work one day and he showed me, I got to see in one of these surgical theaters of one of these devices he sold being installed in someone who was having an amputation for a diabetic foot wound disease. Uh, And it had all of the futuristic uh, biomedical tech you can want. Like there was laparoscopic surgery, space age materials, uh, incredible drugs, you know, very highly trained specialists, and it was an incredible piece of work that they did installing this device. Uh, and then we left the theater, and we saw someone in the hallway who had been there two weeks before for the same surgery, who had gotten a foot removed because of their diabetes, type two diabetes, and they had a cigarette in one hand and a big gulp in the other. And that, those behaviors were why they needed to get this surgery in the first place. And that was the really striking moment for me of uh, what are we doing wrong in biotech where we're developing these incredibly sophisticated interventions that no one actually wants and that solve the problems in the most absolutely expensive and incredible and heroic way possible. So what we committed ourselves to doing was making it easy for people to choose metabolic fitness and making and really digging in on why people made the choices they made and that led to yeah making citraverin and thcv which is this uh it's basically the anti-munchie cannabinoid so everything that like thc does to you this does the opposite so uh it makes you more focused like gives you the opposite of brain fog it gives you the opposite of the munchies and it gives you the opposite of couch lock so when you take this you're like motivated and energized and not hungry, which we've been using for, to help people stick to uh, an intermittent fasting plan to uh, like really supercharge their metabolic fitness.
1: I want to dive uh, more into that uh, in, very soon, but I want to talk a little bit more about um, just how human behavior can be programmed. And I feel like you have a really awesome story that introduces this idea um, with B.F. Skinner, which it seems like you've you've uh, <laughs> uh, you've had a, a lot of interest in and has been like a guiding force um, in some of the work that you've done. Uh, yeah. So could you talk about uh, that story?
2: Yeah, so B.F. Skinner had a similar like, revelatory moment where he was, uh, he was working late in the lab one day and he made this discovery, uh, watching these rodents interact with these uh with these systems that he built these little training systems and he uh discovered this on a friday and the lab meeting was on a monday and this is before like email and cell phones so he couldn't call anyone and tell him about this discovery so he walked home that day because he thought dra- driving would be unsafe and he didn't leave his house all weekend until the lab meeting because he was concerned that if something were to happen to him before lab meeting this profound discovery about the programmability of humans would be lost forever and so he was very careful to make sure he made it to lab meeting and and what he discovered was we now know as uh, reinforcement and this idea everything we know you know everything you've ever heard about like rewards and punishments and all that were was something he discovered that week in his lab and everything else is downstream of that but in the last 15 20 years there's been a new renaissance in this behavioral science where we're able to understand at the brain level, at this very mechanical level, at a level that Skinner never would have thought possible, what it is that creates habits and drives long-term behavior. And uh, yeah, that commercializing and democratizing access to that kind of technology of understanding your own mind and others' minds at this mechanical level so you can build habits was the last company. And now this company is about using those same techniques to help people build ultra healthy habits for themselves.
1: Yeah, so with that like ultra healthy habit creation, um, something that, that you brought up earlier was the hesitancy of people to like, just do what's good for them. Um, and I, 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 you brought up like, a, we, we talked earlier this week and uh, you brought up this really interesting um, uh, idea of this, this injection. I think it was called like new Elasta. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Could you talk a little bit about um, what that is and then I guess uh, how it relates to maybe that, that global vaccine hesitancy that a lot of people are experiencing?
2: Yeah, so this is part of the bigger, like this is a good example of how biotech can deal with its biggest problem. Like, I think biotech's biggest problem is that none of our consumers want it. Like none of the users of biotech want it. Like the hospitals want it, the doctors want it but the patients have really high hesitancy rates. We're seeing this with the vaccine. Um, I also saw this up close uh, when uh, my then girlfriend, now wife was going through chemotherapy and she had to come back three days after chemotherapy to get this injection that would boost her white blood cell count. But you have to come back to the hospital to get the injection. And in a lot of communities, no one was doing that. And so they made this device that you just stick on your arm and three days later without notice, it'll just inject you <laughs> with uh, the Lesta. uh And it, so it solves this big behavioral problem. And instead of just saying like, oh, we've got the solution, this, this problem's over because we have solved it chemically, this company did a really good job of digging in and saying like, oh, there's actually a behavior problem here that we need to focus on.
1: Yeah, and so I guess it's, it, there's like two ways. One, you could take the choice out of change, um, which it seems like this company is doing. And then there's also, all right, how can we convince people to actually change their behavior? Yeah. Well, uh, they're, again, they're both,
2: yeah they're both kind of a choice architecture thing right because like when you get the when you put this patch on you're like pre-committing to it you're like yes i want to do this and like people don't like opt out of coming back to the hospital it's more like oh i couldn't get on the bus that day or you know people have like obstacles and this is sort of like a pre-commitment mechanism like yeah okay i'm committing to doing this three days later
1: and i i think uh Something else that I guess is a hindrance to longevity is looking to the new and shiny rather than the old and tested, which is something that actually we'll touch on near the end with blue zones. Uh, there, there's the like, there are some very simple things that we can do to increase longevity, and of course, there's all this exciting science, but also making sure that we have those fundamentals down is super important. So, can you maybe talk about like you mentioned these like broad spectrum of uh, antivirals? Um, and uh, uh, and there may be misuse or not use at all.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, so this is one of the like, I think we'll look back on COVID and wonder why we didn't do more of this. So I got to help a friend uh, launch a startup to uh, use a broad spectral antiviral to treat COVID-19. Uh, and it's a drug that has existed for 70, 80 years. And, um, you know, I. As much as everyone is, I'm glad that the new ultra high-tech vaccine platforms ended up working out. But uh, I think that when the next pandemic comes around, we're going to wish that we had an infrastructure for quickly deploying these broad spectrum antivirals and these proven uh, technologies, as opposed to always jumping to the the new and shiny.
1: Yeah, and um, I guess going to those uh, those old, uh, methods of, of longevity. There's, there's this uh, idea that we discussed about the future of, of, of what, um, of what like healthcare really looks like and, and, and like what increasing longevity looks like. And, uh, you mentioned this idea of moving upstream. Um, can you describe like what you mean by that?
2: Yeah. So it's like, it's exactly what I saw in the hospital that one day where, uh, a hundred, you know, a million decisions led up to that person needing a foot amputation, and any of the, those decisions could have been changed upstream, and it would have made the surgery unnecessary and all of these heroic measures unnecessary. And that's absolutely what we're trying to do with temper: is move upstream, because if you have good metabolic fitness, if you have high metabolic fitness, you're much less likely to need the sort of heroic measures later in life. So you know, and we picked intermittent fasting as the thing to work on, because of I'm sure everyone in this room knows, but all the incredible things it can do in the short term, medium term, and long term for people. And then we designed Citramarin because it was the number one problem that kept people from sticking to intermittent fasting or from picking up intermittent fasting was this hunger. And so instead of spending $500,000 to uh, do a really expensive surgery and a bunch of heroic yeah, efforts. can we, uh, we can like can we like maybe con-
1: t- attach it to something like concrete? Because uh, I feel like like obesity probably would is like the most like direct uh, thing that you're trying to to counter, and yeah. all of the the health problems that come with that. So maybe like like what is like a concrete example of one of those heroic um, maneuvers that would have to be made? And,
2: uh, well, I mean like these diabetic like these diabetic surgeries. So like when you have advanced type two diabetes and you start needing to have um, body parts amputated because of it, and even you know like obesity is a really extreme example, but a lot of people you know are going to also have like neurodegenerative disease and the the heroic efforts that we go to to keep people with neurodegenerative disease alive as opposed to being able to prevent degenerative disease. Um, and again, that is hugely influenced by people's metabolic fitness early in life and staying like on top of their fitness.
1: Um, I wanna talk about like, I guess two things. Um, I-, I wanna get into really just everything that you're doing with temper um, and where you're currently at. Uh, and also like uh, maybe going into the future of like Consumerization of, uh, of, like, I guess, like bio, um, like, like things like, like, uh, like the Apple Watch, just things that like measure more of your biology, um, and where you see the future of that, and what Temper's place is in that future.
2: Yeah, so we're seeing the big trend here is a consumerization of biotechnology. You know, the Apple Watch is the most obvious example, where so many of the things that the Apple Watch does used to be accomplished by medical devices that were way, way more expensive. And now Apple's crammed it all into an Apple watch, but we're gonna see more and more of that. So, uh, you know, already sequencing technologies are deployed in consumer settings. And what we're doing is a very similar thing where it's- uh, They say sequencing technologies, what do you mean by that? uh, Like genome sequencing Mm -hmm. and uh, proteomics and uh, microbiomics all those sorts of things are being applied at the consumer level uh, and there, instead of being only medical technologies and waiting for the whole medical process to go through uh, and the what temper is doing is in that same vein where we're focusing on again taking a health problem and shifting it from the health space to the fitness space and talking about it in terms of uh like in the same way you go to the gym to tone up your muscles it's going to be an experience in the next few years it feels very much like going to a gym but it's going to be to tone up your mitochondria and it'll be something you do on a daily basis and there'll be these maintenance behaviors and uh, you know we help people design those sort of you know today intermittent fasting is the most effective lever that we have mm-hmm. on that metabolic fitness and we help people put together plans to make like they put the equivalent of a gym plan for metabolic fitness um, based around intermittent fasting and citrobarin. Uh, But as more of these consumerized biotech breakthroughs come along, I think that the important part is going to be designing them, packaging them, and distributing them in a way where end users actually want them. Like the patients want them, as opposed to it being something that uh, kind of gets foisted on the patient at the last minute.
1: Yeah, and that's, I guess, where that um, behavioral science comes in. I wanna open it up to questions on Clubhouse and Zoom. So if you have a question, definitely like just raise your hand in Clubhouse or uh, say that you have a question uh, in the chat on Zoom and we'll unmute you in a second. Um, and uh, and uh, also Jim Quick just came in, so I'll uh, invite him on stage. Uh, Jim, we were just talking uh, about the futures uh, of healthcare. I was gonna actually ask, Dalton, what do you think the, like, having all these upstream, um, uh, I guess, like, ad- like addressing all these upstream problems, how do you think that changes healthcare in general? And do you think, like, like like and what does what does that change occur uh, 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 in terms of, of longevity?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that this will be the thing that sort of transforms uh, the cost structure of healthcare and, like, puts individual consumers and patients in their, like in the driver's seat because currently the vast majority of the costs of the medical system are cleaning up the consequences of a lifetime of low metabolic fitness. And I think as we consumerize more of this stuff, it's going to be way, way cheaper um, because people are going to be doing more of this self maintenance and doing their like the same thing we do with our car, right? Doing the kind of self maintenance early and often.
1: Um, and uh, we just had like a couple hundred people jump into the into the clubhouse, so I just wanted to. Uh, and I imagine Jim, uh, thank you for that. Uh, hi, Jim. I
3: don't know if you hear <laughs>
1: Thank you so much. Um, so basically, just to reset the room, um, we're talking about longevity and how we can uh, live longer, and what are the like what, what what are the the things that are happening? What are we using? Uh, uh, to accomplish that. And uh, we have a couple panelists. We were just talking to Dalton Combs who was talking about behavioral uh, artificial intelligence and biohacking. We're about to talk to, to Mike, who's gonna be talking about open source wellness and the democratization of health. Um, and uh, Mac is gonna be talking about biohacking and decentralized production of gene therapies. Liz will be talking about longevity and medical tourism. And then finally, Dr. Michael Poulain, who's gonna be waking up uh, early, early in Belgium uh, Will uh, be talking about blue zones um, and how location affects longevity because he, he was the discoverer or, or the first researcher um, discovering blue zones. So, uh, and if and anyone has a question, please uh, raise your hand and uh, we can uh, invite you on stage. Um, but uh, we'll go next to um, Mike. So, uh, a little intro on Mike. So, Mike is uh, driven by his belief that greed more than anything else is the root of society's sales. Um, and he founded oval.bio, which is building a completely open source life extension pod with a mission of breaking preconceived notions of capitalism, free market economics. And uh, he's in the pursuit of provide, uh, providing extensive, ultra transparent access to functional life extension technology. And uh, by decentralizing the ability to build advanced technologies, power can be taken away for those who crave it and prevent a future where only the rich can extend their lifespans uh, <laughs> and we definitely want to uh, prevent that that outcome, that dystopian uh, world. But um, Mike, I, I wanna a little a talk about, I guess, how you got involved in the whole biotech space. Um, and also for anyone who just came in, please uh, follow me and all of the speakers so you can keep in touch with our future events.
4: Yeah, um, thanks Samuel. So I got into it because nothing but selfish reasons. I mean, I want to um, live a long time healthily, but also for my father, my great aunts, who I saw them as they were aging, how they were basically melting away. Um, And, you know, just because people have historically, you know, died um, in their 80s or 90s or younger, doesn't mean that has to stay that way. And so I do believe that we are now At the point on a precipice, really, that we can, you know, it's pretty well, you know, established that we're getting to that point that we can make a difference and let people live um, considerably longer than what humanity has known. So, you know, just want to be really a part of that and make sure, more than anything, that it doesn't turn out to be a situation where um, just uh, the so-called elite or haves. Um, are able to utilize this technology, uh, even though it doesn't exist so much right now. And then everyone else is just stepping over each other to um, perhaps have a piece of it.
1: Hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how you actually started your your company and its structure, because I think this is really, really interesting. Uh, you, you, you hear a lot about, like when you hear the word decentralized, uh, I feel like, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is cryptocurrencies, but that that can refer to any kind of organizational structure. Um, and I think your company has an incredibly interesting one. So can you, I guess, describe maybe for people who don't know what decentralization means and then how that applies to, um, to your company in the work you're doing?
4: Sure. So decentralization means that there is no Really central entity that is going to be able to control or has ownership of something. That it will require multiple nodes or individuals, groups, um, each having a stake or piece in it and contributing or ensuring the uh, viability and honesty of whatever it is that they are all um, a part of. So for me, you know, ultimately, how we're utilizing it is one, um, you know, all the things that we are creating, all the technology that we're utilizing, um, a lot of it existing technology, just trying to improve it, trying to uh, bring the synergy of it by combining it with other therapies and diagnostics to remove placebo effects. Um, and then also from a monetary standpoint, where every dollar, how much anyone makes. Um, how much revenue is generated is consistently updated and shown so that it's auditable at any time. And the point of that is to just remove money as a motivation um, and remove money as a potential um, selling factor where, you know, it can historically there, you know, people are driven to do lots of things that are undesirable um you know uh morally because of money or because of greed and so for us really we want to just eliminate that and just have that what we call you know pretty generically a extreme transparency which means Mm -hmm. everyone can see at any time whether it's um you know customer internally the government whoever about how much money we are generating, how much of everything is sold, where that money is being spent. um, And it's all just, and how is more so um, additionally, the technologies are um, affecting people. And that's where we really, you know, have been striving hard to create a system of diagnostics that are able to measure the effects of the different products and therapies so that it is just auditable by anyone at any point. So basically, um, like
1: people can buy into sections of your business and almost have a little bit of ownership yeah. uh, and 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 insight into what you're creating. And so what exactly is like are, are these pods? Because when you hear life extension pod. I have no idea what that could look like. Uh, I mean, I have like a bunch of sci-fi views of maybe what what this might be, Um, but what exactly is that technology and, and how does it affect the body?
4: Right, so the pod is basically the integration of several therapies and diagnostics. Uh, to measure those therapies' effects and more so to build a profile of the user over a period of time to see how either life events or the different therapies are affecting them. Because, you know, ultimately, we're all different. So different things will not affect you how they may affect me um, in the same way. And so the pod is this device. And, you know, if you're on Zoom, you can see it, the working prototype that if you're in Austin, you can come through starting, you know, tomorrow, really, and get inside. um, If you want to email me, and we can um, set that up and get your measurements and have you have that therapeutic experience. The point, though, that, you know, with why we are, you know, creating that business structure that you mentioned is, you know, to start with this pod um, is, you know, we're having an MSRP basically um, retail at $70,000. That's, Not really attainable for the vast majority of people. Yeah. But there's, you know, all the technology that goes into that is essentially can be purchased um, or bought like at just a component level. So such as there's red light. It's a completely envelops you in red light, which is a very basic tech that people know of. But when you look at other red light companies, when I started looking at- What does the red light do for people who don't know? Yeah. So red light, um, essentially what it does is- it uh, affects a specific part in your uh, electron transport chain to act almost like as a lubricant in the production of ATP. Which what is, is the what does ATP do? It's the main energy component that your mitochondria produces for your cells to use. So it's essentially what it's really doing is just allowing each individual cell, whether it's a skin cell, liver cell, et cetera, to just be and do its function more effectively.
1: So does that translate to a greater amount of energy or what is the actual effect that you would feel coming out of that?
4: Yeah. So primarily with, um, with the pod, you know, when it's a red light does has some effect, it's not really super pronounced over a long period of time. People say that, you know, there's been 10,000 plus studies that say red light is a really phenomenal uh, technology for just improving the mitochondrial efficiency. But it's when we combine it with some of the other therapies such as nanobubbles, um, which are essentially bubbles that are nanoscopic in size. Um, And so imagine like, you know, soda, but much more, but the bubbles are nanoscopic, you know, where in a cubic centimeter, over 100 million of them can be um, can fit. And so they allow the liquid medium, which is what you are, invo- you know, covered in in the pod, to have a higher concentration of oxygen, which is a main nanobubble that we're focusing on, um, than what is inside of your blood and inside your cells and body. So through the process of osmosis, really um, diffusion, those oxygen nanobubbles are able to permeate through the skin and into the person to increase the oxygen. Content inside the body um, transcutaneously. So and so, that
1: just, I, I, I we were talking um, with Dalton earlier about like diabetic patients that uh, would lose limbs because uh, of blood flow. So, this yeah. could uh, actively go against that, right? Yeah,
4: that is actually some companies are trying to utilize nanobubbles specifically for that purpose. Uh, So another effect is, you know, with similar to what Dalton was saying is, you know, peripheral neuropathy. But, you know, for us, and that's essentially what that is, is oxygen not being able to get to those extremities. Um, So, you know, other technologies out there such as hyperbaric um, try to have the same uh, and result but they do it in a different way. They're utilizing a high pressure environment to um, saturate the blood at the plasma level so that the plasma can also carry oxygen and that's not what nanoballs do Nanoballs are essentially doing it from the outside in so it's a much more effective way of absorbing oxygen um, through the skin
1: um, So obviously you believe that like rejuvenation is going to, be a huge thing in the future. Um, so, what would you what would you say? I guess rejuvenation's role is in the future of of longevity and, and health, and um, and what what how how do you define rejuvenation?
2: Yeah, so w-
4: internally, we we actually hate calling this first gen um, pod a life extension pod because it's not going to really extend your life. We call it a quality of life extension pod um, because it will improve the quality of your life. I mean, even for me, I'm, you know, turning 40 in a couple weeks and, you know, going into it on a regular basis has improved my skin, has helped reduce um, joint pains, things of that nature. And I've seen an improvement in my heart rate variability, but, you know, it's just basic, simple stuff right now. The point is, is like, we're trying to really um, cement through the actual production and manufacturing of real products at a price point showing the cost of goods sold showing how everything is being used to find people to join us um on the mission towards building what will eventually become a really true life extension pod which we think which i think will probably be like in the next version and a couple years down the road as we start gaining more traction and more um more movement there, but you know, rejuvenation is just you know it's a feel good, look good type of um, products and um, and whatnot. But for us, like you know, and that's where you know really wellness starts coming in, and why I personally dislike the what wellness has become because I think it's more you know, um, it's become a shady market full of placebo marketing. Um, and that's why we really, and I was, you know, initially part of that in the sense, like we had a product, which was a transdermal patch for, um, under the concept of creating a, um, Sacrificial anode for the body, similar to like how pipelines or ship hulls, um, you know, rust. You know, inside of our body, when we have oxidative stress, which is a major factor of aging, we're kind of rusting also with that throughout oxidation. But that was because it was such a novel technology, and because we didn't really see how to consistently get F- effects you know, I had a lot of self-doubt about, am I just selling snake oil? Is it just a placebo um, and whatnot? And I knew like, ultimately- and I think like, that's like, I actually, yeah.
1: it, it seems like when you're on the cutting edge, that's something that, that you definitely should be asking yourself because you don't, yeah, like you, you can buy into your own bullshit if, if you're yeah. not careful. And so you want to have yeah. this, these things be data-driven. Um, exactly. And and so, uh, yeah, sorry, sorry. I just wanted to interject. No, there, you're 100%
4: continue. right. Yeah.
1: And, um,
4: yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, well, I was just going to say, um, you know, so it was really that – you know, being, having that product and see, getting phone calls from people saying like, you know, we I love this. This is the only thing that's helped me. And like knowing like, hey, we're just some like, you know, small, tiny company working out of like a little office here versus like all the pharmaceuticals and different things that they've used, helping them for their pain relief. And um, so I knew it worked. And I knew from my own experience that it does work, but it just wasn't super like a really good user experience um, with it. And you know but still we didn't know what it works for all the time and that's why we you know ended up creating a device to help bring a more um regular like diagnosis with it diagnostic to help determine for what types of things it works for and what location on the body because it's an extremely location specific technology Where even moving it two inches over has the effect and i've experienced this myself on my elbow where i had it just below my elbow and i was getting no relief from a tendon what seemed like a tendon um, tendonitis type pain and then i just moved it two inches above my elbow and where and after like a few hours I was literally cured but that was the worst user experience ever and I'm the founder you know the the co-inventor of it so it really sucks I we created this um, diagnostic which essentially is able to measure the amps which is the quantity of electrons at the nanoamp level so normally people are familiar maybe with the multimeter which is something that electricians and labs used for measuring quantity of electrons and the voltage the the um you know behind it, but that works at the milliamp level or at the amp level. And so we then that didn't work for this tech. We needed to go down to the nanoamp level, which is two orders of magnitude smaller. And that was what we you know created to you know help bring. And now we're working towards defining a actual um, data-driven um f- efficacy of that technology. And that was what really drove the point home of, um, needing these diagnostics to go with these therapies. Cause otherwise, you know, you could just be buying crystals. Um, yeah. and yeah, and that's not really helping anyone. Yeah. You, yeah.
1: You want to like ensure that you're actually doing yeah. something good for people. Um, I want to go into this next idea of, of this, uh, like, like one of the reasons that you made a decentralized company structure is because you wanted, um, uh, govern- you don't believe like governments and, and really entities can be Trusted to control this regulation, and I want to talk about that in a second. But we actually have um, a couple raised hands of questions. And again, if anyone has any questions that you have for either for Dalton or uh, for Mike, please uh, raise your hand in Clubhouse uh, now. But I'm going to invite uh, uh, Richard Lee to just ask a question um, and try to try to ask it in uh, ten words or less, if you can. Um, And uh, Richard. uh, Can you, are you, you, I think I just invited you. And also I'll invite Neil. So whoever wants to talk first, um, go ahead. Richard, you're on stage. Hello, hello. What's your question, Richard? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. We're yes. just talking yeah, about longevity in, in general. What's your question?
3: What's your question? Oh, my question. Wow. The question is uh, related to health. Okay. So can we talk some, some like, uh, um, um, you know, it's any uh, like a electrons linked to uh, mental health or you know? Yeah, I'll I'll, so yeah, I'll try I'll, uh, to summarize. Talking
5: about the uh, talking about the content. Uh, I, I mean. Sense. So
1: I'll try to summarize Richard's question um, on uh, how does mental health actually, because you, you talked a little bit, Mike, about the uh, physical effects, but how do you feel like mental mentally um, the, your your technology can be utilized? And actually, Dalton, uh, opening up to you, Dalton, too, you mentioned the physical effects of intermittent fasting, but what are also the, the mental effects there, too?
4: Um, you know, I don't know actually for my for my stuff there's i mean if you look at the literature there's a lot that that states where oxidative stress does have um you know deleterious effects on mental health and cognitive abilities and how it might have you know an effect on a number of different um mental uh cognitive age-related um conditions uh we really i don't have the um, data i don't know at all how my products are would affect um that, but I do know one thing from my experience is like, basically, for whatever reason, the older you are, the more benefit you get from um, the technologies that I'm working with, and whether that's because your natural um, antioxidant ca- uh, production capabilities that your cells have has diminished, whether that's, you know, for other reasons, because you're not don't have the same level of oxygen flow through your body, um, or it's just a lifetime of abuse. Um, for whatever reason it is, um, and we're hoping to, we're planning on finding out, um, the older you are, the the greater the effect. And if you're, you know, if it's talking more about, you know, things related to depression or things of that nature related to mental health, um, that again, there is some literature out there that talks about it, but, you know, I don't think there's any real conclusive information. Yeah, Dalton, if you want to
1: jump in there too.
2: One of the critical things that I think about as far as, again, and this comes back to behavioral science for me, is the uh, like the virtuous cycles and vicious cycles in people's uh, lifestyle. So like when you get on the right track and you start exercising, that makes you feel more motivated, that gets you back into the gym, right? And it's the same thing like sticking to a diet, like you're eating the way you want, that makes you feel better, both like because you're achieving your goals and physiologically, and then again, it's just this virtuous cycle, and that's something that, um, again, I think this is one of the big problems that people have. Like, I think one of the causes of one of the causes of diabetes that we don't talk about is this sort of uh, despair cycle that people can fall into, and like snapping people out of it, and uh, getting one thing in your life moving correctly can can create that virtuous cycle that gets everything else moving correctly. And for a lot of our users, that's obviously diet, right? Like getting on intermittent fasting and improving their mood. Um, I was actually literally talking to a user yesterday who was telling me about how picking up intermittent fasting um, helped him. He quit alcohol, he quit smoking, and it all started with him picking up intermittent fasting um, and he and I were talking because he'd been inter- fasting for a year and he said the one problem he couldn't solve was this chronic hunger and he had relapsed a couple times because of his mm-hmm. chronic hunger and he like he, he emailed us and wanted to talk because he's like look this this citravarin thing has fixed this biggest problem I had that was that was starting these nasty loops in my life and um, like I think like again, from the behavioral science standpoint, like keeping those uh, virtuous cycles going, so you don't fall into vicious cycles.
1: Yeah, and then also just uh, like seeing what the root, um, uh, like indicator, or or like I when when we're talking about habits, there's like I forgot the word that they use, but it's like the indicator that that starts the process. Um, and oh, I like think your, indicate
2: your cue or your trigger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Your
1: cue, yeah, the trigger, and usually that trigger would be hunger. And if you have a mint, a temperament, uh, <laughs> uh, Dalton's company for all those tuning in are, is, is called Temper. If you have a uh, something that can can stop that cue, then it becomes a lot easier to build good habits. Um I want to go yeah, back so, to Mike uh, just a so-
2: really sorry, real quick, real quick example of that. Um Like uh like when people have a snacking habit, we tell them to put. Their temperaments, like where they would otherwise snack, and like that's the way to interrupt the trigger and like replace their old trigger with a new yeah. healthier trigger. Um, and so, a lot of that trigger engineering is a really important part of behavior change.
1: I um I want to uh uh and and Dalton I I love I, I actually I read um uh, I was reading Atomic Habits recently and also Jim Quick's book um, and it really talks about how all of these all these uh, triggers and cues and uh, uh, behavioral um, adjustments that you can make to make like better habits like just what are the mechanics of that so it's super super interesting stuff highly recommend those books um, but i actually have a question for mike from um dana in in the zoom chat uh she's tuning in from sydney australia and she's asking how oxygen nanobubbles uh, avoid oxidative stress and can you receive too much oxygen in this way um i don't really understand that question to like because i i don't i don't know like the intricacies of that so maybe could give you Could you expand upon what that question means to you um, and please answer it?
4: Yeah, that's an awesome question. So, yeah, absolutely. People can um, be over oxygenated. I mean, oxygen poisoning is a real known thing. Um, that's why one of the other uh, therapies in the pod is also hydrogen gas inhalation. So, you know, hydrogen water is something that's trending now becoming more popular. Mm-hmm. It's not really, it's kind of, I'm not a fan of it, because I think it's, you're not actually getting a therapeutic dose of hydrogen in water, because it's actually one of the least dissolvable gases in water. But, you know, ultimately, the purpose, the point of the pod, I mean, there is no silver bullet for life extension, right? It's going to require an orchestra of technologies working in concert uh, to achieve like an actual meaningful um, extension and lifespans. And the point of the pod is essentially to bring about, you know, where one technology, one therapy is, Um, deficient or has a side effect to supplant that by, you know, combining it with another um, therapeutic. So in this case, oxygen and, you know, really, and the red light working synergistically to pump up the production method, um, the production capabilities of of, uh, the electron transport chain of the mitochondria in producing ATP. There's going to be potentially a increase in uh, radicals. And so that's where, for example, the hydrogen gas or the electron donation comes in to neutralize those radicals as they are being produced um, and to essentially make them into water. Um, And that's the purpose of why we have spent so much time um, really just making these diagnostics um, and making completely open source with like detailed, almost like detailed recipes um, to the nth degree as much like just like really, I've put a lot of heart into it to make allow anyone to just copy it, rip us off, and audit it um, so that the purpose of those diagnostics is to be able to measure the, um, the effects that those therapies are having. To either know if they're working but also if they're having a negative effect on someone because that is i mean like i said you know just because it may work phenomenally well for myself you know whatever is going on in someone else it may actually have a um, negative effect and it's important to know that and i think that's actually like a big fault or you know problem area in our in the world's actually healthcare mentality where not don't really appreciate as much um, and there's a lot of people that already know this. So this isn't like anything new, but don't appreciate as much how just because one thing doesn't work for one person doesn't mean it's not going to work for someone else or because it works for someone. It's not going to. Um, and I think COVID actually, since that's obviously on everyone's head uh, mind is really clear of that, how some people are just completely not affected by it and other people end up in the hospital and they may be the same age, et cetera, what's going on there. Um, so, so yeah, that, that point that you bring up is really um a key item that we focus on and like, Hey, what are the potential negatives of these therapies? Um, both short-term, long-term, you know, session setting, um, and how can we, uh, protect against them and how can we overcome them more than anything?
1: I think, um, something that I I just like, would like to reiterate is how you are going about, again, structuring that company, uh, to prevent a, a future where there, where there's just a lot of, um, centralize longevity and and health within a very few amount of people um, and uh, and like what you're doing by providing all this uh, transparency is is you're allowing you're allowing people to to just like participate in that longevity um, in a in a more uh, a democratized way um, I'm actually gonna uh, uh, there we have a, a question from Simon um, so Simon if you could ask that question um, in uh, uh, oh There we go. Simon, um, go ahead. Oh, Simone. Simone.
3: uh, Sorry, I switched up just as you were speaking. And so during that transition, I missed exactly what you said. Yeah,
1: if you want to just ask your question in in 10 words or less. So we were just talking about the democratization uh, of health and how Mike's company basically uh, has a decentralized company structure that allows for transparency and also for the like patrons of of people who believe that uh, health should and longevity should be democratized. Uh, when they buy into uh, a part of his product, they like have a little bit of ownership into that company, and uh, and then I, I guess that you know takes the, those ideals um, into the future. So. Um, that's a, yeah, and, and feel free to ask a question based on you know any of the speakers that you've heard before or or uh, what we were just talking about right now.
3: Like uh, blood pressure monitors until we're sort of more at an advanced stage, um, and so I just want to put to both Dalton, Mike, and whoever else would want to field this um, as we move to like a like a more. Um, like like a technology that is better monitoring our bodies um what are what are the diagnostics and what like what are the numbers that you guys would have been paying attention to had you started off earlier in your life doing this like if you were to speak to like a a teenager versus a 20 year old or a 30 year old um what would you tell them to keep their eye on and uh with that
1: question. And I'd love to uh, open that up also to the people who haven't talked yet, um, Liz and Mac, if you want to uh, open up and uh, talk about that question too.
0: Okay, in my unmuted in both places. Obviously uh, genetics and um, biomedicine. Uh, I think that that's where uh, most kids should be putting their efforts that are really interested in biological processes right now. Um, That's where a lot of the medical cures will come from, and that is also a really exciting field for for young people.
2: So for diagnostics, I think in five, ten years, the bathroom scale is going to look like a rotary telephone to Uh, people who haven't seen one before like the bat, the bathroom scale is dead and it's dead because we're getting so good now like what what people read like when people weigh themselves what they're really interested in is their body composition or what they should be interested in is their body composition like what percent of my body is subdermal fat what percent of my body is visceral like that fat that grows around your heart and that fat that grows around your intestine that's the really dangerous fat and That we're gonna be able to detect very soon just using cameras. Like cameras in our house will, as we're just walking around, will be able to tell us what our body composition is. And um, I think that's one of the most important things and most powerful things for people to track and like keep in the back of their head much more so than weight. Like that'll be the killer sensor and the killer biometric of uh, consumer biology in the future will be body composition.
4: I would like to just say that um, I think a couple of technologies that are available today are uh, continuous glucose monitors and heart rate variability. Um, I think just with those two, you can actually get a really phenomenal understanding of how your body is responding to the foods you're eating, um, to different environmental effects. And, you know, especially when you are able to combine them, because uh, the heart rate variability, the more we are starting about it, we're really understanding how much of a um, just almost like a wide swath of general health um, that can really, you know, portray. And then with CGM continuous glucose monitoring, knowing how the different spikes um, in your, you know, foods that you're eating and whatnot are affecting you um, will ultimately help you um, at least stave off some of um, age-related issues, um, we believe so. Um,
1: Mac,
6: do you wanna, yeah, do you wanna uh, hop in here? Glucose on lock, a lot of other things fell into place. Uh, tracking sex hormones like testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, uh, uh, those have an incredibly holistic impact on uh, your running experience of life for your quality of life. And so those are worth uh, checking on. Um, and thirdly, in terms of diagnostics, uh, doing DEXAs. Uh, really helped me be able to track my tissue composition uh, uh, more precisely. And so I could basically make changes to my diet and lifestyle and get immediate quantitative feedback month to month or every three months. and uh, see oh, okay, so I, I built you know th- this many pounds of muscle in my legs or I lost this amount of fat in my belly. Uh, some days I would not be able to tell like some days I'd be bloated and I thought I was uh, some days I thought I was looking better and feeling better but the DEXA said otherwise uh, and and vice versa so having that objective standard that the DEXA is a type of x-ray that's quick that quickly tells you what your bone density fat composition and muscle is Uh, so for me, I recommend doing DEXAs every so often, tracking your insulin and sex hormones.
1: Uh, Mac, great answer. And Simone, great question. Uh, thanks for asking. Uh, we have time for one more question before we start Mac's uh, section of the panel. Uh, Neil, uh, I, I saw you first. Uh, actually, Simone, if you want to say something to finish off. I just say
3: thank you, but <laughs> no, let me just also say the answers were great. Um, I can, I didn't know what DEXs were, I could look those up. Um, and the suggestion to take uh, sex hormones um, into consideration was a great one. The blood glucose monitor. Is sort of triggering me because i'm about to sit down to do a dinner like mac and cheese and a donut <laughs> so um, thank you guys that was great awesome go
2: nuts go nuts man enjoy it i'm i'm a bit of a bear on the blood glucose monitors just wanted to get that in real quick i'm a little bit bearish like i would much rather track my insulin like as opposed to having low blood glucose i want obviously i want low fasting blood glucose but i think day to day it's going to be everywhere for the next few years we're going to hear about hundred continuous glucose monitors, I think it's a little bit of a red herring. I'd much rather know my insulin sensitivity than my blood glucose level. I just wanted to throw it out that there, you know. Yeah, he gets it, Mike gets awesome. it. Awesome. I got it, I like it. <laughs>
1: um, be, actually, uh, Neil, I'll, I'll probably bring you up for um, uh, after Max section, but um, just to, to continue on things, uh, I want to intro Max. So. Mac has been a a friend of the Finding Founders podcast for a while. He was uh, one of our early, early interviews. And when we interviewed him with his company, Mini Circle, he aims to decentralize production of gene therapy and extend the length and quality of uh, human life. Um, We're gonna get into actually a story of why he he really um, got into it. You guys should really check out the podcast that we did on him. Um, uh, But he uh, has an incredible story that started out with a small island, on a small island with a lone computer connected to the internet. Um, from there, he navigated into like the dark underbelly of the web, unraveling like a lot of secrets, which led to uh, a small fortune in Bitcoin. And then Mac traveled the world seeking leaders in philosophy, came inches, uh, within inches of death uh, after an explosion, and eventually started a biohacking lab that would uh, lead to his current business, Mini Circle, um, Mac, so happy to have you, and always uh, awesome to chat. Um, and I just want to start off with a, a question of like, how you um, like like started and, and became interested in studying immortality.
6: Good to be here, Sam. Thanks for inviting me back. Um, how did I get started on immortality? That's a deep. That's a deep question. I was like, uh, I don't know, twelve, I guess. Uh, and uh, really thinking about kind of the deeper issues of life and what I wanted to dedicate my uh, energy to in service of people in the cosmos. Um, something really important, uh, the two big things that uh, drew me to this direction uh, story-wise are uh, the fact that, my uh, parents took me on a trip to go to uh, Thailand, rural Thailand, where my mom was born. Uh, my mother's family are rural farmers, and uh, they are, uh, you know, very poor. Um, you know, my where my mom grew up, they didn't have running water. Some some places didn't have electricity. Uh, uh, they had a banana tree farm and uh, grew their own fish in fish ponds, and that's how they sustain themselves. They collected rainwater and that's what they drank. Um, so I got to meet my extended family and uh, uh, had a really powerful experience at the age of, uh, I don't know, maybe 10. Uh, I came back to the U.S. in my regular old public middle school in Florida and uh, had kind of seen things. I had a much more expanded view of how the majority of people on earth uh live. and uh, um i wanted to improve the quality of life and uh, uh just make things better for everyone i want
1: to um, talk want about them. that that experience you had at that yeah. place, um where you met that girl
6: so <sighs> that's that's the second part oh. of the story um so when i was 14 i Uh, I went to political science camp in Northwestern University, as you do, and uh, I met this girl named Abby, and she was the most beautiful, magical angel that I had ever met. Um, She really just made me feel alive and sparked uh, my excitement about living. And we got closer and closer, and eventually she told me that she was born with an incurable genetic disease. And, uh, uh, this kind of shattered my view of, uh, uh, reality. You know, I was very, uh, hurt that such a beautiful person, uh, would uh, be living a life of suffering, um, that could not be controlled, maybe couldn't be helped, um, And I saw that as an injustice that was uh, fundamental to our world, and uh, I was inspired to do something about it. And so, and so,
1: how did that that lead to? I mean, you've been you've been toying with these ideas um, for a while, but uh, I'm wondering how you actually found the idea of mini circle because there's a whole, you know, like crazy, um, biohacking, uh, journey that led up to that. And, uh, maybe you could maybe talk about some of the stuff with Aaron, um, leading up to,
6: (laughs) it's a long story. There's many ways to tell that. Uh, I'm sure everyone involved would have a different, uh, different story, but, um, basically, uh, the mini circle project itself, uh, kind of uh, the, the roots of it were I started this biohacking lab in Austin with Mike, um, you know, the previous speaker uh, five years ago now. And uh, this was an open uh, research space for biohacking. People could work on developing medical devices, new drugs. And uh, we were looking to just create a really freedom oriented, growth oriented space to make some incredible, advances. And uh, um, the year, the same year that we created that, I went to a entrepreneurial startup uh, disruptive camp that was in Chile. And I met my close friend, Tristan Roberts, and he had HIV. We uh, really resonated on many levels in terms of our interests and consciousness and activism and and, uh, really trying to uplift, uh, everyone creating new technologies that could do this and breaking psychological barriers in society. So our goal became to find some way to create HIV medication without having dependence on a pharmaceutical company that's patented it. And, uh, uh, I kind of tossed this idea around in my head for a few years. Uh, and eventually things came together after the NIH published uh, some research indicating that there was a, a single antibody that had been found that was the closest thing to curing HIV that had ever been discovered. You know, antibodies are the body's natural immunity that's created to uh, bind to viruses. And uh, uh, that combined with the fact that I had breakfast with Josiah Zayner, who is, you know, known as the Pirate King of Biohacking. He lives. He had lived in San Francisco. He just moved to Austin last month, and I was having breakfast with him in Old San Francisco, and he told me that plasmids actually worked, and uh, uh, that it was kind of uh, something that was holding the field back. That people were under the impression that they were not as effective as viruses. So uh, I put two and two together and thought, hey, well, if the NIH has publicly published the genetic information necessary to transmit this potential cure for HIV and I can make plasmids in my lab at a cost of, you know, less than $1,000, why don't we try it? and Mini circle was born. We uh, found some plasmid designs, did some dreaming, uh, did a, a lot of different designs side by side, and we found some plasmids that could very, very cheaply uh, be created uh, at a home lab, at a cheap biohacking lab, and uh, uh, be created at a purity level that after injected uh, would allow the sustained expression of uh, selected proteins, meaning you could uh, easily take a gene of interest and uh, inject it, add it to your body, and uh, that's it. It's it's easier Mm. than going through the process that we currently have to get gene therapies, which... You know, the most recently approved gene therapy in the United States, uh, the cost is $2.1 million. Now, Mike mentioned, uh, you know, his pot is 70000 and he, he's trying to do things to make that more available. And, you know, Sam was like, oh, that's kind of out of people's price range. $2.1 million is out of most people's price range. And if you have a child that is born with this disease, uh, what do you do? I have this uh, moral dilemma that I'm a fan of bringing up uh, called the Heinz Problem. And uh, it's a classic psychological problem that has been asked to people of many cultures, indigenous cultures, all types. Anthropologists uh, thoroughly investigated this. And basically, uh, the way that it works is Uh, People are asked of all different ages. um, There's a man whose wife has a certain type of cancer. And uh, the doctors tell him that there's a new drug that was created that might be able to cure his wife's cancer. So he goes to the pharmacy and says, I need this drug. My wife has cancer. They say the price is this much. And it's way more than he can pay and so he goes out and tries to raise money from all his friends and he comes back and he still has one tenth of the money needed to buy this drug. And, uh, uh, he says, please, please give me, give me this. We, we need it. And they say, no, we own the drug and, uh, you need to pay for it. Uh, so the question is, is it ethical for the man to break into the pharmacy and steal the drug? And, uh, There's basically three answers to this. There's three stages of moral introspection associated with it. The first is called pre-conventional, and it's the idea that uh, might makes right, and uh, if you need it, you take it. Or, uh, oppositely, you could say, well, he could get caught and go to prison, so that's why he shouldn't do it. Uh, the second type of moral reasoning is called conventional, and that says, oh, we have society and laws, and uh, everyone needs to follow them. If we stopped following these laws, society would break down. Um, so that's the type of reasoning. The third type is post-conventional, where you regard the man as his own moral actor and uh, that it's perfectly respectable to steal the drug because the value of her life is worth more than $2,000 or whatever the price of the drug may be. And uh, um, but th- this problem is often suggested to be like an artificial problem or you know a hypothetical issue, but it's not, I argue it is absolutely not.
1: Well, this is something that you're actively trying to solve, right, because you realize hey, like, DIY gene therapy is possible, but it's not accessible. So I'm wondering, what are the the ways in, in which you make it more accessible, and is, like, pirating genes a possibility?
6: I think pirating genes is the way of the future. Uh, and if you look at the Internet, when the Internet started, when it started becoming very popular, and you look at the analysis of Internet traffic, you know, back in... 2000, LimeWire was the most common software in the world. Uh, Napster was super famous. It was it was one of the biggest websites out there. And uh, uh, BitTorrent, which is a protocol that's normally used to transfer uh, copyrighted information. Uh, one third of the internet was used for a decade to transfer information uh, through what's known as you know, music piracy or movie piracy. So, you know, if, if there's a gene therapy out there that somebody really, really needs, you know, the fact is that the actual materials cost of uh, Zolgisma, that $2.1 million therapy, is as little as $4,000 if you were to contract it to be made By a Chinese lab and you were able to know what you were doing so there's greater costs in uh, researching the drugs but it's my opinion that there are tons and tons and tons of people out there that we uh, that have incredible ideas that could be making and designing new gene therapies and under the FDA's current regime, it's hard to do that. my uh, The example I think of is there's this guy named Phil, uh, what, what was it? Philo T. Farnsworth. He was the inventor of the television. And he invented the first nuclear reactor and the first electron microscope. And he was a farmer born in a log cabin in 1906 in Idaho in the middle of nowhere. Um, We have to make sure that the ability to participate in the creation of this new type of technology is available to people like Philo. We, the the most amazing discoveries that are going to completely change the world. Um, I don't think that they will be made in the most insular ivory towers. I think they're going to come out of places that we don't expect. And that's how I, um, I want to uh,
1: uh, open open it up to, to some questions because uh, I know uh, Neil and Catherine have, have been waiting. Um, Neil, why don't you start? Uh, uh, can you uh, ask your question to or direct it to one of the panelists? Uh, I mean, it's
7: going to be kind of the, the people in the middle, Mike Dalton and Mac, I guess it is. Um, I'm I'm a physician. I do a lot of biohacking and health optimization patients. And I'm interested in your guys' point of view because it's different than what I see at least short-term versus long-term, that's really what my question is going to... You seem to be accentuating more the tech benefits in longevity and biohacking versus uh, lab work and supplements and lifestyle changes. I mean, I see when I see right now, I use technology currently as just on, like everything from red light to hyperbaric to ozone. I think in five or 10 years, I think the whole paradigm will definitely flip when things are more perfected and the studies are better, where technology, everything from, again, hyperbaric to pods to... Um, um, in terms of then even up to into gene therapy um, are going to be where how everybody from doctors to wealthy individuals are going to boost longevity and increase, increase their span. But I think right now there's still some big gaps in terms of the technology part of it, in terms of A to B, even from HRV and CGMs where there's not a, it's not a lot of tangible usable data. It's great short term. I mean, I mean, most, but so they don't even know what to do with their H with their with what their hrv is or what their cgm is showing them at all so i think my I guess my so the, my question would be do you you got why do you feel that technology at least from what you guys are saying technology short and long term it sounds like is the way for longevity and improve health span and i'm done speaking I, I could
6: jump in with that if you don't yeah go ahead, Matt, yeah, go ahead.
8: yeah
6: um yeah i hear you on uh The fact that doctors have this incredible uh, responsibility of communicating to patients and helping people uh, upgrade their lifestyles holistically, Um, using data and using some of these add-ons currently, and I think in some sense always, uh, the base of increasing health span is going to be an incredibly holistic uh, practice that is very often based on diet, lifestyle, social relationships, uh, your relationship with yourself, how much stress you have. Um, all those things are incredibly important. Gene therapies definitely promise some uh, incredible changes in uh, um, you know, the running experience of being human. And uh, there are people that are born with different types of genetic uh, mutations that could make them especially susceptible to certain types of chronic diseases of aging, like, you know, cholesterol metabolism. So um, I hope that those will be available soon. I know that they will be created Um that's what I that's what that's what I got from your question mm-hmm. kind of asking about is that did did I answer Neil. It just I mean
7: I believe in lab but like you mentioned I totally believe everybody should be getting a fast sense on CRP like you mentioned but it seems like you the panel feels more that tech has a big component to longevity and life and health spend today as opposed to maybe where it's going to be in five or ten years um, I think that's that's my question. So, Why do you guys feel so are you so big big on it now as opposed to maybe where the whole I think there's more holes in it now that needs five to ten years to really hit its peak velocity?
2: So, so. coming on, on the horizon, like 20, 20 years down the line, like gene therapy is gonna be huge. Like these hardcore biotech uh implementations are going to be transformative. But like today, we don't need any of that to be radically transformative. Like what we need is to help people change their behavior. Like if we look at life expectancy, not at like the 1%, but life expectancy across the spectrum, the hard part is getting people to do the behaviors that we know will get everyone to 100, 110 years old. Um, You know, it's eat, breathe, sleep, move. You just have to do those, but you have to do them the right way. And what technology would be really, today's technology is really good at is assisting that and like helping people actually achieve that change what it's going to be good at two three five years is as other sources of rapid feedback like i don't think we'll be doing genetic engineering in five years but we will be doing like blood monitoring and like we'll be doing rapid feedback on the behaviors i've taken but again it all feeds back into this like actually getting people to change their behavior because like getting people to move, if everyone moved, breathed, slept and ate the way that they wanted to, diabetes goes away, obesity goes away, Alzheimer's almost goes away, Parkinson's almost goes away. Like we can fix almost, we can fix, you know, 90% of our healthcare budget by just getting people to pick up the right behaviors.
1: And also to your, your question, we actually just had um, one of our guests, uh, Michelle Poulain, enter our, our, our Zoom and he's going to be speaking in a little bit, but he discovered uh, blue zones. And so, going to what Dalton said, like there are the core principles of longevity that, um, that like, the largest amount of people can use. And then there are, is also this technology that, that can be added onto that. But of course, like the core principles are something that you also have to live by and live by. Um, and start living by earlier. Um, so that's like eating locally sourced like produce and not eating, you know, uh, 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 things that are outside of the country. And also, like, you know, movement is, is a big one. Um, and, uh, and uh, but I'll let, uh, I'll, I'll let uh, Mike jump in too.
4: Yeah, I was just gonna say, um... You know, we, we just use like a term, it's like the five pillars of longevity, which is, you know, therapies, diagnostics, data is, you know, two of the pillars, but there's also like they've said, you know, nutrition is a major component as is uh, social and, um, and recovery too. So sleep, obviously, things of that nature. Um, but really one of the things that, you know, everyone, you know, mental health as a previous question was asked about and where that, wherever that comes from, from that person. For us, like, you know, internally, we, we refer to that section as passion. So, you know, let's say you are getting old and why, why do you even want to live, um, you know, into your hundreds? What's the point if you don't have something driving you or some purpose, right? Um, so I think that, you know, is something where a lot of times as we um, anecdotally from seeing others, as we age, uh, a lot of times people feel beat up—not just physically beat up, but you know, life has beat them up, and um, they've seen others like that they care about passing away, et cetera, and that just really drives people where they're just like, you know, I don't want to, um, or more so, I know from my own family where you know they we talk about this, and they say they don't want to live um, to be you know 150, 200 years old because what they can you know take that in as is you know their aches and their pains and the struggles that they have Um, but ultimately you know regarding what everyone else said you know whether it's sex whether it's your friends and social circle whether it's exercise it's um, you know not eating uh, gummy bears uh, whatever it may be or too many gummy bears but um, you know things of that nature that's all true but if you don't start working on the technology now, um, it won't make progress. I just like everything else, like why really focusing on technology? We know, um, and there's other people in the world that are working on you know, mental health and that are coming up with really cool exercise equipment and you know, fitness uh, regimes. But for you know, what our you know, fire is, is we want to um, help bring about the technology, which is a really cost prohibitive aspect of longevity. Um, and that's why, you know, we've really honed in on that, because the other stuff is just, you know, it's about life decisions, whereas the technology side, yeah, it's about being self-aware, but it's also about having the resources to attain it or access think, that technology. I think
2: the, the technology is also what you were saying before about purpose and drive, right? Like, that's, for me, like, every company I've ever worked on, like, that's the hard tech that we're trying to crack is how do we help every person live that purpose driven life. Cause once you help someone find their purpose, um, and this is part of our onboarding with every user is, you know, why? Intermittent fasting is not the easiest thing on earth. Why are you doing this man? Like, why are you gonna ignore your food drive? Why are you going to, to do all these difficult things? And like getting people to connect with their purpose. And a, a big part of what we do is helping people connect and reconnect and stay in touch with their purpose because that's what gets them to actually achieve the behavior change until their habits take over. And so like that's, that's you know, technology in its own right, this idea of how do you take someone's purpose drive and their motivation when their motivation is high and use that as juice to get them to create the helpful habits that's there when their purpose and their internal motive is weak so that it, they're sustained through till their next burst of purpose.
1: Exactly, and getting those helpful habits to get those like keys of longevity, like the base ones. Um, uh, Neil, thank you so much for that question and uh, Catherine will probably uh, get to you after um, our next panelist Liz. Um, Liz, do you have anything to add on that before uh, we jump into your section.
0: Yeah, sure. I think that what I'm going to do is actually persuade you towards genetics, and I'm going to persuade you uh, with the truth that genetics are today. It's uh, not new technology. It's not as new as that you think that it might be. And that for some people, um, they don't have the luxury of access to good food. They don't have the luxury of access to local food, being able to afford it. And some people have the problem of obesity outside of what they eat and genetic illness. And so genetics gives us the ability to actually go in with gene therapies and modify people. And so let me put one poison point in case. So everyone on this panel is relatively young, but today over 150,000 people die of aging diseases, okay? That's pretty serious. They don't have the luxury of changing their diet and living a healthier life. And now through genetics, uh, a great study that George Church did and something that we have uh, done as well with different genes that our paper will come out in the next couple of months is we can lower blood glucose through gene therapy regardless of what the animal eats. And so the power of that gives the ability for people to sort of be boosted up and get on track. And I think that the point was made that some people are actually born with defective genes. Uh, They may die younger than other people. um, And gene therapy has the opportunity to step in there. But Gene therapy also has the opportunity to step in later in our life. So if you look at lifespan and you look at genetics, if somebody has defective genes, they're not very likely to live very long, okay? They might have a much shorter lifespan than other people. And then in the middle, you have things that affect longevity the most in the middle, which is diet and exercise and lifestyle. But then when we start to look at the end of life, it goes heavily, heavily back onto genetics. And so that's our area of expertise is working with gene therapies that have actually been around for a couple of decades, showing you that the technology is for today and people are already using it today. And that's what we're gonna talk about in my panel. And then how we're, we can actually expand on that. So we don't wanna bottleneck technology for things that work for some set of people right now. We need to expand technology for the people People who need it most right now and then move that back to younger people who can benefit from it probably more in the future. So what I'm saying is gene therapies that we might use for somebody who's very old now and very sick will probably, those same gene therapies will be used in young people kind of like immunizations against aging. So I, I definitely want to say that this is new, not new technology, and this is right now, and you're, you're going to see this uh, burgeoning quite quickly.
1: Um, uh, we're gonna jump into Liz's introduction in a second, but Neil, thank you for the great question and uh, sparking a little, a little debate. All right, um, so let's, uh, let's go to uh, Liz's introduction. So Liz <laughs> uh, is known as the woman who, will, who wants to genetically engineer you. Uh, She's a humanitarian, entrepreneur, author, and innovator, and the leading voice for genetic cures. Um, As a strong proponent of progress and education for the advancement of gene therapy, she serves as a motivational speaker to the public at large and for BioViva and the life sciences. Um, But to start out, uh, I want to delve into how you actually got started in this field and and, and maybe some of the the reasons um, you, you, you feel
0: strongly about it. Right. So why would I have such strong opinions about genetics? <laughs> so in uh, from 2011 to 2013, I volunteered uh, my time as an advocate for the use of stem cells, trying to educate the public of what stem cells were and why we use them and why embryonic stem cells and autologous stem cells were two very separate things and why that area needed funding for regenerative medicine. And I did not know what would happen in 2013, but in 2013, my son was diagnosed with type one diabetes. And um, this threw us into the hospital. Uh, It's an insulin dependent disease. It's not controlled by diet or exercise. Uh, It's an autoimmune disorder where his pancreas no longer produces insulin. So um, while in the hospital, I asked, you know, I had spent two years looking at regenerative medicine. I asked, where is this technology? you know, how how can we get access to this? How can we biobank my son's pancreas? How can we get him some islet stem cells? And um, they just basically looked at me and said, lady, that is experimental medicine. We don't use that in children. Um, there are kids here dying. You should consider yourself lucky. Your son has a treatable disease. And um, after a few days we went home, but I really kind of never went home. Um, when I was working in the stem cell area, I had learned about epigenetics. And I got to spend a lot of time with epigeneticists. Uh, one major one who was really Can you quickly um, just impressed upon me. Epigenetics? Right, so epigenetics, um, okay, so all of your cells have the same genes, whether it's a stem cell, a, a, a cell in your nose, a cell in your toes, they all have the same genes, but they code differently. And that's why your nose looks different than your toes. And that's what gives stem cells this beautiful ability to regenerate tissues, uh, to know when there's damage, signal and, and make some cells to sort of fill in those gaps, maybe heal a wound or um, help regenerate your liver, for instance, or like your pancreas who, that does have a slow regeneration, but in type one diabetes, your body can't get uh, above the uh, autoimmune disorder and the immune system attacking it. So this is really exciting. I am learning that different genes and different cells code for different proteins, and therefore, it changes them dramatically. And so a regenerative cell is only changed by the genes that it codes for. And those are the epigenetics, what genes are turned on and turned off in those cells. So this got me really excited about genetics already. So when I brought my son home, we learned how to use insulin. And I started pounding the pavement to find cures for kids. I, I quit my position in the nonprofit and said I'm going to try to find funding or start a company something to find cures for kids and I went to a conference in the UK I flew over there because the professor of genetics George Church was speaking at the conference and I thought this guy this guy is going to know what we need to do and um the but the conference was about aging and I actually was a bit insulted by that initially because I was looking for cures for kids. But it just so happens to turn out and now every gene that my company looks at as a therapeutic benefit to an aging disease also treats a childhood disease. So in some ways, childhood disease and uh, aging are intrinsically entwined. And in other cases, we can learn so much from using genetics to treat the biggest uh, medical unmet need, which is aging itself. I believe that it's a disease that we can then expedite cures for kids and what we learn through doing gene therapy on older people who have no option. They have diseases that look, aging comes with 100% mortality risk right now, 100% everyone dies. So there's a there's an ethical basis for going in and starting to treat aging with genes that also can benefit kids. So that's my story.
1: I want to delve a little bit more into why it's important to address aging as a disease, because like 41 million people will die from aging this year. It's a lot of people, um, and I think a, a lot of people think that it, aging is, is 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 just the process of being human. Um, and uh, and so, like, I, I guess, like, like, how would you push back on that idea?
0: Well aging is just a really distinct pathology. And, 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 and if you want to put, let's just go back. So it is natural to age and die, but you know, polio is natural. Ebola is natural. COVID-19 is natural, but we fight against those things. Cancer, absolutely natural, but we've all decided as a society, if we can cure it, we would heart disease, dementia, they're a natural process. Um, But it just so happens if you, ter- if you treat aging, so my company looks at the hallmarks of aging, if you treat the hallmarks of aging, you have the potential to c- create one drug. We believe this will be through multiple genes and other interventions, but you have the ability to create one system therapeutic that will actually obliviate Heart disease, cancer, dementia, you know, kid, kidney failure, and the biggest diseases. But then let's let me get back to why there's a case and point there, and, and things that most people don't realize. So when after the age of about sixty-five, you you actually have parallel diseases of aging going in your body, but generally your doctor is treating the shortest fuse. They might be treating heart disease, but your kidneys are also failing. You're slowly going blind. Um, Dementia would happen to everyone. We we show slides of 87-year-old brains, people who don't have dementia compared to people who are in their 20s. It's completely different it looks like a different organ. Um, it's not just happening to your skin, it's happening all the way through your body. So if we consider aging a disease, we can then fund technology, we can then repurpose old drugs and we can create new drugs that actually target multiple mortalities. So if let's just say you cured cancer. If, if this year we cured cancer, that sounds really amazing. But for the average person, it only extends human lifespan from two to four years—that's it. Because then you die of heart disease or dementia. You cure heart disease. You know that's a huge impact. It might extend everyone's lifespan by about five years, but you end up dying of the other things because they're because they're all just symptoms of aging cells.
1: And I, I think something that that you mentioned um, that, that was interesting is there. You have to like like to address these problems. There, there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of new development um, in, in therapies and different drugs. But the thing is, even if you have those drugs developed, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can use them. And so, I I want you to talk about uh, the state of FDA regulation. What that what that even like regulation looks like, and maybe some of the ways that uh, your company is trying to circumvent uh, uh, or, or push through those regulations and, and try to get drugs that are going to help people to the people that need help.
0: Yeah, exactly. So thank you for, for segueing us into what we're here to talk about. So when I learned about aging uh, interventions and childhood disease, My company and I, we formed uh, with some medical doctors and some scientists and some researchers, and we looked at a couple of the most promising gene therapies to treat childhood disease and aging. And in 2015, I took those therapies to launch the company to show that the time was now that we needed to to mobilize. And then I went on the road talking to government after government about how we needed to get advanced access of these therapies to people now
1: like in like trying those those therapies yourself uh what what, was there like did you imagine that there was risk involved in that where was there any fear associated with with trying things that maybe felt a little bit more untested or and, and I guess how did you have the confidence to actually do that
0: well, we actually researched the the two therapies for almost two years before I took them. So we had from 2013 to halfway through 2015 when I actually took the gene therapies. One of them is a gene therapy that increases your muscle mass. It's a gene called folistatin. And- does about that well. Yeah, I know he does. I like him. So um, it uh, was used in studies with muscular dystrophy. And um, so it had already been through safety and Efficacy. And one of our doctors, the doctor who gave me the gene therapy, actually had already done that gene therapy himself to increase his muscle mass and his stamina. The second gene therapy is to lengthen the ends of the uh, chromosomes called the telomeres. And, um, it was a therapy that had been used in multiple animal studies. It had never increased the risk of cancer and the things that people feared. Uh, but and why should it people was care about
1: lengthening telomeres? Just, uh, giving a, oh. giving a little, little background on that for people. who don't Sure.
0: Know. So why should you care? So if you really want to live a long time, uh, you're going to need to lengthen your telomeres. So, um, The lifespan of multiple organisms have been uh, tested, and cellular division seems to be a limiting capacity for a myriad of people. And this is why um, you don't wanna spend a lot of your life sick. So for instance, when you're sick a lot, you go through more cellular divisions than people who are not. So when we look at people that are called super centenarians, people who live over the age of 110, they generally have had a really physically healthy life. They haven't, they hit the ends of the cellular division, which in humans is between 50 and 60. Um, at a later age because they went through less cellular divisions earlier in life, or at least self-reportedly did. And so, um, and we know that getting sick with things like COVID-19 and other illnesses uh, tear through uh, a myriad of your, your telomeres as well. And it has to do with immune senescence. So senescence are when cells are no longer active and participatory anymore. They stop uh, dividing. So, um, if so I feel you like that gives to. the
1: background. So sorry, yeah. and then I'll steer us back towards uh, sure. what we were initially talking about with uh, you injected yourself. Sure. Um, with
0: so, so these two therapies. So why? what childhood disease does that treat? It treats a whole bunch of them, but one of them in particular is probably progeria. That would be the biggest target for lengthening telomeres. These are kids who die in their teen years and they look very old at that age. They die of the diseases of aging uh, in an accelerated manner.
1: Um, and so going towards the the again the the, the ha- how your company is circumventing FDA regulations
0: absolutely
1: um, yeah talk a little bit about that
0: Okay, so in the US, we have a couple of platforms that we would really like to legislate to expand, but we don't have the the money to do that yet or the time. And they're called Expanded Access and Right to Try. Uh, The problem with these two platforms, Right to Try gives you the ability, if you're terminally ill, you're dying, there's not access to anything else, you can access a drug that has at least been through phase one um, of clinical trials. And you can actually get access to it pretty quickly Basically, the FDA has about a 99% approval rate. If anyone's listening and needing it, you should uh, do that. Uh, there's another uh, route called expanded access that I talked about and um, or mentioned. And expanded access is a little bit different. You could get access maybe to any drug, but it takes time and there's a lot of paperwork and there's a lot of costs involved. Also, you have to be terminally ill. So how do you start to formulate data on how drugs work in humans without them being absolutely dying on the table or terminally ill and having to do a myriad of paperwork? Well, we, we, we basically found ways to partner with companies that not only look at the drugs that we're interested in, but look in uh, at other companies' drugs, essentially accelerating this whole area and give people access now to those technologies through medical doctors to with whom they consent to use of the drugs. And we've actually gotten some studies funded. We, we actually had six people treated last summer which will have data that will come out for public um, appraisal uh, in the next couple months that was uh, for dementia. I mean six people got free gene therapies for dementia and each one of those gene therapies is tens of thousands of dollars.
1: Hmm. And So what kind of world does uh, is this trending towards? And also, just to to preface, um, Catherine will will answer, we'll have you ask a question very soon. If anyone else in the audience and Clubhouse or on Zoom has a question, please uh, raise your hand and we'll invite you on stage.
0: Well, I think that this is trending towards a more affordable world. So, how do we get cures for people that don't cost so much, that don't cause uh, what spinal mus- muscular atrophy, which was alluded to earlier in the call, that's a two to five million dollar cost? Congenital blindness you can treat your eye and, and be able to see if you have a rare form of congenital blindness for, you know, 200 and some thousand dollars per eye medical tourism sort of opens it up and creates um, uh, the pressure to bring these costs down. Also, by treating aging, we're looking at the biggest medical unmet need and by scale, we can bring the costs down. So, you know, not only does it drive data so that we can bring the drugs back on shore and you know, run them through the FDA to get them through to a bigger audience, it actually drives competition. If you look at open heart surgery, $157,000 if you wanna do it in the United States, but you can fly to India for $9,000 and actually they have a better mortality rate in India, less people die from the surgeries. So it sort of creates this sort of competition that, um, allows prices to come down, people to reconsider, and um, drugs to be made, endpoints to be found, patients to be served, investors to be happier with an industry, and in a more expedited way.
1: Um, I love that answer, and that sounds like a very interesting future. I want to open it up to some questions. Um, uh, Catherine, do you want to go first?
8: I just wanted to say this is a conversation that really interests me. I have a clinical practice that basically applies uh, longevity medicine to clinical practice. So trending biomarkers of health, aging, inflammation, immune senescence, body composition markers. A lot of the things I heard about 45 minutes ago that Machiavelli said uh, he thought was important to trending his health, specifically the insulin resistance and how we can avoid what truly is the disease of aging aging prevented so that we can live long enough to enjoy some of uh, these discoveries of gene therapies. But my question to you, Liz, is this is how can we, uh, Assess the pleomorphism of the genetic expression of these uh, diseases of ages aging because we know from genotype to phenotype how sick someone is with those genetic predispositions. There are many genes that are coded and downregulated and upregulated. Um, it's rare we have just a knockout gene right for a clinical disease
0: state. I think that that's a really good question. And And also, Liz,
1: could you mm -hmm. uh, maybe explain, like re uh, re explain that question, maybe in more layman's terms for uh, some
0: people? Yeah. So, what's being asked here is. Because the genome is vast and there are many genes and it's a bit like an orchestra, right? We we don't we just don't get to go in and have a, a piano solo. Uh, when we affect one gene, we might be affecting a multitude of genes and, and each gene actually can code for a variety of, of different pr- proteins. So um, it is a very good question. And so when we look at medical tourism and we look at the lowest hanging fruit for what is an opportunity for today's technology, something that we think, or a doctor might think that could be signed off on. There's something called meta-analysis that has to be done. The the gene needs to have been used in a multitude of studies in labs that had uh, no uh, power over one another, no reason to um, affect the data. We wouldn't just choose a gene um, randomly, like out of a, a, deck of cards and say, well, we're going to upregulate or downregulate or knock this gene out we're looking at genes that have a, a basis of premise in multiple studies of what they do and how they affect cells and human cells specifically. So in uh, the, the genes that we look at, we look at PGC1-alpha, we look at um, telomerase-inducing HTERT, we look at folostatin and we look at Clotho. These are genes with a pretty big, um, Meta-analysis. Uh, we have a good understanding of what they do and what they do in human cells as well.
1: Um, any of the other panelists want to uh, add anything to that? Uh, Dalton, go ahead.
2: Uh, so actually, I had a follow-up question um, to for Liz. That like, so quick story. Uh, when my girlfriend was going through chemo, uh, in addition to the chemo, there's this like super drug. Uh, It's a monoclonal antibody. It's basically like a smart bullet for cancer treatment. And the the chemo is awful, like hair falls out, like a bunch of awful things happen to you. But the monoclonal antibody treatment all by itself is really well tolerated. There's like the silver bullet thing and the chemo. And they've never done a trial of the silver bullet thing by itself. Like the only trial that's ever been done was taking the classical treatment, which was the chemo, and stacking the monoclonal antibody on top. No one had ever done the monoclonal antibody study. And the idea was like, it's not worth it to do the study, even though it might prevent everyone from having to go through chemo again in the future. So like, I'm totally with you on like the regulatory environment is not doing a good job at keeping up with the possible. Like if you you ran a, a city or a country, like how would you change the way drugs in the U S are approved or treatments like is drug and treatment even the right framework? Like how would you change that up?
0: Well, what I would do is I would do government funding of biotechnology. I would ensure that companies that have promising technology were allowed to use those technologies right here in the U.S. and people who need them the most. The reason that they do stacking with monoclonal antibodies and chemotherapy is because chemotherapy is essentially your basic regimen right now if you have cancer in the U.S. You actually, in order to qualify for a more advanced or more interesting let's say therapy you have to have already gone through that and chemotherapy comes with you know not only hair loss but it comes with accelerated aging it's it's incredibly uh hard on the body it's a huge money maker for hospitals by the way we have one doctor who uh, moved to uh mexico to do most of his work even though he's a u.s doctor because he wants to do immunotherapy so he does ctl4 inhibitors pdl1s and um ablation. And he says that he gets better results with that without, you know, affecting the organism so negatively and adversely like the chemotherapy does. Um, And he doesn't want to stack, but most of the patients that he gets, he's stacking. They've already had chemotherapy and they're basically coming to him for uh, the last option. So catching people early trying new um, technology, having the world or at least the country in together, understanding that the biggest risk factor is alone are these diseases, they will kill you. And so what sort of risk aversion are we going to, deploy or get rid of in order to uh, stand up and and make the next uh, battle against disease. So we need to stand up, we need to get bodies in. If we catch them early, they would have the opportunity to try a new advanced therapy, and then they could go back and try an older therapy if that doesn't work. Case in point, the UK does a really good job at the Marsden Clinic in trying new technologies in uh, patients. I have a Friend, a good friend of mine that I met on an airport uh, in an, on an airplane. Sorry, they made me move, and they gave him my seat. And it was the first time I kind of s- spoke up and said, "Wait, why did this gentleman get my seat?" And he said, "Good question." We struck up a conversation. He's lovely. Um, he has been alive now for many years in stage four prostate cancer that is all throughout his body. He just had some spot radiation on his lungs and near his heart uh, just a few weeks ago, but he's alive because they pull out this technology and they give him the option. They don't say, here's your only option. And then, you know, for this amount of money, look, some of the most promising drugs for cancer right now in the United States are $9,000 a week and they extend your lifespan by three weeks. We got such better stuff coming in genetics if we just had the ability to mobilize it we could get it to so many people.
1: Liz, thank you so much for this answer. Um, And uh, Dalton, thanks for the question. And Catherine, also, thank you for the question. Um, So now uh, I wanna uh, move on to, Dr. Poulain, uh, so he was one of the three Blue Zone founders, an expert in longevity. He's been involved in Centurion studies since 1992, and in 2000 he met and validated various Centurions in Sardinia and discovered that in certain areas, which he coined Blue Zones, there was an exceptionally high longevity within the population. Um, And uh, they work to expand the Blue Zones to validate several more, including Okinawa, Japan, Loma Linda, California, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, and Icaria in Greece. Um, I'm probably mispronouncing some of that, Um, but uh, Ankita is going to be an oracle for um, Dr. Poulain, because he is on Zoom. Um, But uh, I guess my question to you to start off is, is why did you decide to study Blue Zones?
9: So oh, you give me the floor, as I understand. Yes,
1: uh, I'm giving you the floor. Yeah, so just tell me like, how you decided to uh, study blue zones
9: and yes. uh, how did so how that it... uh, became uh, an interest of yours. Yes, in fact, you have to know that basically I am an astrophysicist. Can you imagine an astrophysicist dealing with the topic of longevity? It's a long way. And in between, I have uh, I learned and I am a demographer. And uh, now I am working on, on longevity since uh, 21 years now. I met for the first time my centenarian in 2000. And I may tell you that I probably met uh, 200, 300 centenarians around the world in all kinds of uh, situations, including in a small village of Cuba or in a remote uh, village of Okinawa on so on. So for me, uh, my field experience, it's the most important basic knowledge. I see a lot of things. And I am also interested in history. And I discovered that uh, some people reach 110 already more than one century ago and are fully validated. The first man that I have discovered reaching 110 died in 1899, which means more than one century ago in a fully different uh, condition. And this is the same also if you go to to Costa Rica, just to take the example of Costa Rica, you will see very, uh, I will see people in very basic situation reaching the age of 100. I will never forget this meeting, that that person that I met in Cuba, he was uh, more than 100. He has even not a sofa to sit, no freezer. No, no way to, to keep the food correctly. And he has a large family around him. And this is the place where I ate the best anana of the world. It was the well-being of that person. The, 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 the way of living of that person was really wonderful. And uh, that's why I come to your topic. I am not at all, uh, uh, I will say, not at all discussing with uh, genetics. And, uh, but I am mostly looking how people are living and how people are living longer. And if they are living longer in a situation of really well-being. And uh, I want to oppose two two saying, I will say that, uh, I will not say this is an American saying, but uh, I see it like this, Uh, a big sentence on the TV, how to become centenarian in four weeks. How to become centenarian in four weeks? We have the recipe and you will become centenarian in four weeks. At the opposite, I will say that to reach 100, it takes one century. It takes one century to reach 100, which means if you want to reach 100, you have to start quite early. It's not telling when you are 70 or 80, oh, I want to live longer. No, no, you cannot change your life so late, you have to start earlier. And so uh, for me, the, the gene therapy that we we discuss now, it's really important to, to help people to to pass all those uh, negative uh, disease that arrive at 20, 30, 40, and 50. But it's a fully different story when you are 80 or 90 to now if it will help you to live longer. There are a lot of other factors, really a lot of other factors that will ensure you uh, a life in full well-being when you are this age. And uh, what I can say, the people that I met in all these countries of the world are really living simply, naturally. And um, And I I want to delve into
1: what you mean by that um, in a little bit. Um, yeah. just in terms of like how, how those people operate. But I, I first wanna thank you for uh, calling in from Belgium. I think it's like four or 5 a.m. right now. Exactly. Um, and so exactly. I, I, I really wanna thank you for that. Um, and I also just wanna let you know that uh, in addition to the, all the people that we have on Zoom, we also have uh, uh, around like 70, 80 people listening in a clubhouse. Uh, so thank you again. But uh, I guess just to maybe anchor those experiences of the, all the places that you traveled um, could you describe the, the, uh, the life and and the lifestyle and maybe some of the habits of uh, one particular person or, or one particular community that you visit in your blue Zone research
9: I'm probably, I' probably visited probably 50 50 times Sardinia the mountain of Sardinia and I have a, a lot of got good, good friend there. Unfortunately, as most of the centenarians, they will die within the two to th- three years after you met them for the first time. This is the problem. But Lilina, for example, in Seulo, this is a, a remote village of Sardinia, uh, she was. Uh, she will be 101, 101 next April. She lost her husband, that was 102, just uh, two years ago. Salvatore Angelo was two years ago, and I met Salvatore Angelo, just before he died. But, uh, and both of them lost their daughter that was only 47 and died by cancer. So I will not say they have a very uh, happy life because the only child they have died. But Lily is a strong, strong, I will not say strong girl, but strong women. And, uh, and the most important uh, point when I visit her, is that I keep her hand, and we can stay long. And there is something going from her to me. And this is mostly something that is similar to love. She gave me a a, a full uh, handwork that took her probably uh, several days, several months. And I received it. She gave me a lot of things. And she's so happy to to be, to discuss, to, to exchange, and so positive. And in fact, she is positive. And I think that if in the life you are positive and fascinated, you will go far in your life and, uh, and you will help a lot of people around you. So for me, the contact that I have with these people, I remember Michelangelo, unfortunately he died six months ago, but Michelangelo was so happy to, to talk, to explain what he did during the war to, and to drink a glass of wine. Yes, we, we drink a glass of wine, and uh, he likes to have the TV coming, and uh, and even at one moment we we were together in a tasting uh, competition. So you have a lot of wine in front of you, and you have to taste all the wine and to give your opinion. And Michelangelo say, "I cannot throw away the wine; I have to drink all the glasses." And he continued to drink all the glasses, even he, he was at eighty nine. Jury for Miss Italia. Miss Italia, Michelino, 99, was part of the jury. He is so proud to have a photography between two charming ladies. This is Michelino. I will say that very often I love more male centenarian than female centenarian. They are more positive and more. I will say um, natural. Why, why do you think there are more
1: male centenaries than female? And then also, could you maybe delve into the specifics of like what makes up these centenarian communities? Um, like, if, for example, you, you mentioned food is important, exercise is important, uh, love uh, being one of those important factors. And could you delve into each of those and explain
9: what exactly you mean by that? I will tell you something that is the conclusion up to now of my research is that it will take time to know what is the real secret of living to 100. It will really take time because it's a, a mixture of a lot of things. Okay, the food is important and for the food they will tell you don't eat too much and eat locally, eat seasonally, these are all points that you have to, to do. If you eat tomato in Sardinia, you will see the are these are different tomatoes. That the one you are growing, I remember south of San Francisco, there is a shop there where you have a lot of fruit, very big fruit. I have never seen so big fruit and vegetable, but it's not exactly the same as you grow in the garden of, of Sardinia. You have to move also all your life. But I I have the usually I say move naturally, which means don't do exercise, strong exercise and so on. No, just do your garden, go and take care of your animals. That's what they do. I will not suggest to all of you to to have some some animals and to go in the mountain with animals. The secret is not to go in the mountain of Sardinia to live longer, definitely. But the most important is the human relationship, the support that they have from their family, the support from the, the community. Do you know that they do calendar with the with the centenarian on the wall? They do celebration for the centenarian. Centenarians are not thrown away from the society. I like the senior city, the city where you put all the senior. But it's it's a bit like a gerontological zoo. This is my problem. the The old people should be should stay in the society. And in my country, my my saying is that. Let's reintegrate the senior in our society. Let's give them some role to learn to the young people to do a lot of things. If you put whole people in a very remote area, like in Arizona or Florida, I don't know where, they will live together for sure, but but they will be out of the society. And uh, maybe I'm not so in favor. We are not going in the direction of what we learn now from this blue zone. Stay in your family. Stay in your society and, and be very strong with your community. This is a very important message.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely some lessons that we can take with us. And again, to like reiterate, um, lifestyle is super important. Live simply. Food is important. Eat naturally. Uh, eat, eat things sourced from your own community. Exercise. When you're exercising, just make sure that you're, you're making natural movements. Um, and then like a lot of love. So being integrated into that community. We actually have a, a couple questions from people on Clubhouse. Um, John, uh, uh, you've been here for a little bit. Uh, why don't you uh, go ahead and ask your question and direct it to whoever panelist uh, is uh, uh, you think it's, it, it most fits.
10: Yeah, great. Thank you so much for the time. And uh, I'm, I live and breathe this stuff. So I appreciate the topic. Um, and just to segue back to Liz, when she mentioned telomeres, uh, there's a study back in PubMed that mentioned uh, consuming broccoli with uh, mustard powder. It kind of uh, leads to the uh, production of uh, sulfurophane, which directly uh, affects setting uh, telomeres. I don't know if there's any, uh, if you've read that or any, can validate that. And my other question to the panel, and also Catherine, too, I'd love to have your input on that as well. But my other question is respect to the use of tech for longevity, like the idea of... Uh, uh, glucose monitors I know levels is still in the private beta right now but the idea of that one be one way of monitoring your diet uh, with uh, some sort of tech device if glucose if there's any uh, basis for for that so thank you so much and I'm um, John I'm done speaking thank you
0: Wow thanks John did you say mustard powder and broccoli I <laughs> I hope it works. That would be awesome. (laughs) That'd save us a lot of time. We're all for, you know, kind of open sourcing this stuff. So I would love to see that paper. If you could send it through to me, that's Liz at bioviva-science.com. That's my email. And as far as uh, devices that you wear, we're masters of that in this house because my son has type one. So he wears the glucose monitor and, um, he has a pump for insulin. But um, I think that other people should answer to that because they're more into the tech for why you would do it for health purposes, uh, which of course are beneficial. Watching your blood sugars and keeping them down is, is great for slowing aging.
2: Yeah, so I've had the privilege of playing with both the Dexcom G7 and the Abbott Freestyle, which is the sensor type that Levels uses. Levels and like five of the companies that are all trying to duplicate what Levels does. Um, And the main thing that I learned, so I'm kind of bearish on continuous glucose monitoring. I think glucose is not the most important thing to know about. It's easy to measure. um, And it's really important if you're pre-diabetic or have type one or type two diabetes. So that's why we're good at sensing it. It would be much better if we could sense things like insulin. the main thing that I learned from playing with the continuous glucose monitors was that this idea that my blood sugar is low in the afternoon and that makes me like sleepy and crabby, it's like nonsense, like that's not how that works at all. Um, the, so yeah, I think it, the, the use case, the clearest use case I see is that and this is from um, a conversation with people who have tried Levels, people who work at Levels. Um, is that there is a there's, there's this thing called the glycemic index, which is how impactful a particular food is on your glucose level, and the some of them are high, some of them are low, and some of them are very variable. Um, and a lot of that variability is on an individual level. And so the best use case I've seen for a continuous glucose monitor is for an individual to assess which foods they're sensitive to. And again, it's something you can do pretty quickly. Like you kind of set up all the foods that you wanna profile and like you do one a day and you can get the idea of like, am I personally sensitive? Is like my my blood sugar personally sensitive to potatoes? I don't, but then again, like I don't know if that's super important. Like for overall health tracking, long-term indicators of a healthy sugar metabolism, like A1C, I think are more important than something like a um, continuous glucose monitor. And if you're not diabetic or pre-diabetic, the advice you will get back from a continuous glucose monitor is the advice that you've already heard from everyone, which is do intermittent fasting. <laughs> um, and like, yeah, so that, that's my take on uh, on CPMs. So- just to
4: follow up on that, I was going to say, um, you know, CGM, as, as Dalton said, you know, by itself is not necessarily super useful. Um, it's when you, in my opinion, it's when you actually combine it with other um, measures to see how the changes in your blood glucose are affecting other things, such as your heart variability, blood pressure, um, lung capacity, blood oxygen content, um, pulse, et cetera, things of that nature, you know, all these other measurements and then see like, hey, is my um, glucose levels peaking or plummeting or staying steady at an elevated level, et cetera, um, having a detrimental effect on my um, other aspects, other measures of health. Um, So, you know, by itself, I'm not, I don't think it's super, um, Useful, perhaps, and um, for you know uh, non-diabetic people, but it's when you do combine it with other things that you can start seeing and gathering how it's affecting you on those other measurements, to, and then make a decision um,
2: based on that. To give you a, an idea of like why I don't think they're very useful, so when I was wearing them, um, I did a little self-experiment, a little, uh, n of one study, where I fasted for forty-eight hours. And then I ate half of a cheese pizza, half of a large cheese pizza. Um, And that gave me a big blood glucose spike as anyone would expect. Then I fasted for another 48 hours and I ate a sugar cube and waited 45 minutes and ate half of a cheese pizza. And the sugar spike from that second one was much lower. The reason that works is because the sugar cube uh, bumped my insulin level and my bumped insulin level prevented the spike from the pizza. But there's no way you can convince me like I should eat a sugar cube before high carb meals. And that like the spiking was really the problem. It's the fact that like I couldn't see the insulin and like the invisible insulin and not being able to see it like actually gave data that would be confusing to most people if I and the reason I did the fasting for so long was to like make sure I was testing myself at a really good baseline. And again like the main data that you'll get back from a continuous glucose monitor is uh like eat fewer carbs, do more fasting, yeah. Eat more temperaments. One,
0: th- <laughs> one thing that we're experimenting with is um Uh, methylation kits. Uh, So looking at your DNA methylation over time, which is associated with your biological age, rather than your chronological age. So in longevity, we want you to get very chronologically old, but we want to keep you biologically young. And so we're hosting a bunch of kits on our site and selling them um, that are really good measures of biological aging. So we look at seven different epigenetic clocks in an epigenetic kit, and then we help other companies get going by selling their kits as well. So we're, we're selling a kit called Glycan Age, and it it's, um, it's backed by decades of science um, and lots of scientific literature as well. And it is basically, how your immune system is functioning and it's your biological basis biological age basis and that and then looking at levels of things like nad that are associated they're like the currency of your cells so there's atp that that your mitochondria makes energy with and then there's nad that actually is kind of like helps exchange all of this currency and every living organism has it in In them, but as we age, it gets less and less. And so, by looking at some of these new biological markers that are more uh, long span markers, you know, things like epigenetics that change over time, uh, we have the ability to start honing in on hopefully. Uh, the testing uh, technology of the future. Because when a doctor looks at you in the future, they should be looking at where you're at in your aging, not what your symptoms of aging are. I mean, they're going to look at those as well, but we want to start targeting the hallmarks. So if we can lengthen your telomeres, fix your mitochondrial dysfunction, but you still have senescent cells and loss of proteostasis, we want to make sure that we're targeting other therapies in order to to hit those things, there's about ten hallmarks of aging, and and we're trying to find therapeutics that you know hit the vast array of those. And so, um, you know, I think that the testing is getting better, uh, but it's still going to be some time to have really good uh, biomarkers of aging.
10: A uh, quick question, with that, um, I was a, a three athlete. Uh, Uh, athlete in that college so the question is uh and I've been cursed with incredibly high metabolism and so I'm wondering uh for Dalton is it more of a software thing where you're getting you know I'm being facetious here but as far as just the way your your body is wired where you're getting weird um readings or um that was just my quick question with 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 respect to metabolism does that play a a role in in uh the aspects
2: yeah so that that wasn't about me like the 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 thing but, with the pizza and the sugar cubes, like I like, that a hundred dollars that anyone can reproduce that exact same finding. And it's just because of the way insulin operates and the fact that we're not able to track insulin continuously, like there isn't a pop it on your arm, continuous insulin monitor means that like, we're only getting one of the variables in a really complex dynamical system, which makes it at an individual level in real time, very, very hard to interpret.
1: Uh, Mac, if you wanna add to that, I I know you were jumping in there.
6: John, I just wanted to say fans are awesome. And that reminds me of a paper I just read last week that uh, said, uh, you know, they're testing telomeres and white blood cells of women and women that were having sex every day had a really strong uh, telomere lengthening effects. So, but not men. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, I, I think the best things you could probably do for your telomeres are lots of sulforaphanes, which are great for your liver and immune system. Uh, maybe the sex every day is a is a is a good idea. Dalton just and, asked, uh, is, just that ask is that, that as well? true in men as well? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I, th- I think that study might have just been for women. Um, but let's expand the studies. Uh, and then I know Liz has got a telomerase therapy that I've been hearing about as uh, very powerful. So I'm sure all those three options would be great ways to extend the telomeres.
10: Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate it. And just for the folks on uh, Zoom, I heard uh, the study was July 26th of 2018. And, uh, and essentially, it was a supplementation of diet by a uh, genius I'm going to butcher it, but anyway, if you could find it on PubMed, if you've searched for uh, mustard seeds to increase uh, bioavailability of sulforaphane in healthy human subjects with cooked broccoli. All right, I'm John. I'm done thinking. Thanks again for, every, for the uh, help, guys. Awesome. Thank
1: you, John. Um, I want uh, to let someone ask a question over, over Zoom. Um, so, uh, Kayla, um, I, I know you have a question and uh, I'll, I'll unmute you now. And maybe actually, I'll invite you up to uh, to speak on the on the Zoom room.
5: Hey, can you hear me?
1: Uh, uh, yes, but also maybe uh, I'll invite you to speak on Clubhouse too.
5: Okay, great.
0: Sorry, I'm managing tech here as well. I'm on the Finding Founders team but I just wanted to say thank you everyone. So this is so exciting. And I wanted to bring it back over to Michelle um, to talk a little bit um, about some of the places you've been and like what you have observed in the, uh, you know, hundred year old plus people you've seen. I uh, lived in Japan for a little while and I just wanted to know about Okinawa. I know that's like maybe way off topic of, of some of the other things we were talking about, but I just want to know a little more about those qualities of people that maybe you see there, but like also across other countries. And then you know, if the rest of the panelists have things that they want to add off that, then hope we can we can make a dialogue about it. But uh, yeah.
9: No, but in fact, uh, what uh, I I've been uh, three or four times to Okinawa. And Okinawa, is uh, it was probably the first place of the world where the longevity has been, um, has been put in evidence. There is a big difference between Okinawa and for Sardinia. For example, this is the sex ratio between centenarians. If you go to Okinawa, you will have nine women, centenarians for one man. Why in, uh, in Sardinia, you have one man for one woman? This is really different and very intriguing. And up to now, we don't have any explanation that may be uh, linked to, to the genes or to, to what happened. The only explanation we could propose is an explanation on, on the way of living, the living condition, the role of men and women in the society. So this is uh, something very intriguing for us. And if you bring me uh, an explanation for the exceptional longevity in Sardinia and not considering the fact that men live as long as women there, then I will say it's not a good explanation. It's not a good explanation. Up up to now, I may say that the place of the world where women are living the longer is Okinawa, and the place of the world where men are living longer is Sardinia. And uh, I have not a lot of uh, factors that are similar in the two countries. I will say that the only factor that is, uh, uh, I will say common is the positive thinking, the fact that you take care of the oldest old, They are very important. And in term of food, the only food that I saw that was the same is the pork. They ate pork both in in Okinawa, both in... uh, in Sardinia and so on. But I will not say that all people in eating pork around the world will live longer. You know, All the time you should bring example and to try if you may replicate. If you say olive oil is the best to live longer, okay, but then all the Mediterranean population should live longer. What is not the real situation? You have a lot of um, thing to, to, to consider to find what could be really the secret of longevity I'm, I'm sure I will finish my career without knowing what is the secret of longevity, this is good.
1: Uh, thank you for that answer and uh, uh, Caleb, thanks for the question um, i'll move you back to the audience um, so. Uh, I, I guess uh, we're, we're, we're wrapping up right now, but um, uh, I'll allow I'll a couple more questions. So if anyone in the audience has questions, uh, definitely raise your hands. Um, and I just wanna take this moment to uh, uh, tell everyone in, who, who's on Clubhouse and who is on, uh, on, on Zoom, just make sure you uh, uh, follow me and, and Jessica and all the speakers um, that, that are there. So uh, you can be aware of the next time that we do this event. Um, we're we're planning on doing monthly events. So definitely uh, 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 follow us so you can keep in touch. Um, But I want to pass it over to Charles. Uh, Maybe we can do a little bit more rapid fire questions. So we can have uh, Charles, Anthony, Nicole, and then maybe Omar um, can ask a question and then then we can wrap up. So uh, Charles, can you ask your question in uh, uh, 10 words or less and direct it to one of the panelists.
5: Okay, I, I'm, I, I'm looking for principles for um, uh, bioplatform design. Um, two of the ob- objectives of the uh, bioplatform that I'm designing um, is about uh, reverse aging, right? The other one is about um, not just a health, um, I call you knowledge uh, space of health. Like you have health your have uh, fitness, you actually have uh high performance like flow states. So reverse aging and uh, large space of health. If we resolve these two issues, it's the rest of the issues pretty much resolved, right? Like George Church would say. But you know, uh, when I uh, look into this biology book, I a lot of biology, development biology, all this stuff, most of those things are talking about actions what it is, what it does. the rarely uh, do uh, principles. Um, I'm not sure that there is a, you know, a developmental a psychologist in the room. As a child, when we teach a child, they didn't learn by action, right? Then as they grow up, they fake out representation, figure fake out uh, abstraction. When they get into like 20 year old, they understand the principles. So um, like for reverse aging, the only person who um, I found actually get us that level of understanding is David Sinclair. So I read uh, his papers, his Um, books. Just to to allow the other
1: um, other people to ask questions, what
5: what is your question? Okay, so how do we choose um, uh, which area uh, to look for to to achieve uh, reverse aging? There's so many different things, like, like telomeres and all other stuff. A lot of stuff, they don't, don't hold the water, yeah. you know, because there are it's like thousands of downstream things. I imagine
1: that each imagine guest that is going to each- have a little bit of a different answer to this. Um, so uh, maybe, uh, Liz, we can start with you. And thank you, Charles, for your question.
0: I would just, uh, Charles, I would just answer it really quickly. Um, go and read a paper called The Hallmarks of Aging. Uh, that gives you the targets of aging, uh, what we know uh, causes it, and what we know that we should target in reverse. and reverse. And that's as simple as that. It's called The Hallmarks of Aging.
6: that address uh, as many of these hallmarks of aging as possible and uh, slow or reverse the onset of the types of chronic diseases associated uh, with aging and uh, all of these or a good number of the elements of these cocktails that are being developed are going to feel good um, people are going to feel healthier more vital and that's immediate feedback that you can get that's real
2: Thanks. So
4: <laughs> I was um, just going to say there is no silver bullet, right? So uh, just as they have echoed, um, it's just going to take really perseverance and trial and error uh, and research to find what works, what doesn't work, and uh, perhaps you know other types of technologies such as AI, etc., can help us find certain solutions more quickly. But theres I can't imagine there being a single silver bullet that will just do it. So it's really about the lifestyle and uh, maintaining the perseverance to keep seeking it. Yep.
2: Yeah. So um, I feel like the uh, well, Dolan, I don't think I can hear you on Clubhouse. I feel like the, uh, the marketer in the room, but like, don't call it an anti-aging platform. Don't call it a longevity platform. Like you have to make people want it. Like you have to make, design it in such a way that it's something that end users want and like want to engage with. Because um, these technologies are only gonna be, like you wanna have impact. Like it's one thing to make a thing that works and you can tell all your friends how cool you are that you made a technology that works. We also have to make it a technology with impact. And if you're gonna have impact, people have to want it and have to be cool, has to be sexy.
1: Um, Awesome, Uh, we'll uh, open it up to uh, actually a Finding Founders team member, Um, Zach, uh, do you want to ask your question, and Kita, can you be the oracle for him on Clubhouse? Zach, can you hear me?
6: No, um, it was actually the other Zach, and I think he has left Zoom now, so he can skip over to the next person. Okay, no worries.
1: Um, Well then, actually, let's go to, to Anthony
10: then. Hello, everyone. My name is Anthony Bonvino, and my question is coming from the perspective of a young professional and master's student. If you could dedicate your career to a specific bioengineering field or topic that would change the world thirty years from now, which one would you suggest, and why?
1: Love that question.
0: I think the area of of gene therapy and gene editing. um, So remember, that's a big umbrella uh, statement for a bunch of technologies that sit underneath it. It's really infinite. So what we can do with genetics is um, pretty exponential uh, to that unlimited. point of even looking at other species and looking at their genes like technology that me, we may want to use. And that probably sounds really crazy because um, you're thinking, well, that's, you know, a, a xeno gene from somewhere else. But actually in 2016, the genes from light sensing algae were used in human eyes. And so um, not only do we have a vast world to uh, deal with, uh, with a, a huge encyclopedia of genes, um, that we could use as technology, but there's also synthetic biology, and that's a really exciting zone. So, I mean, I just when I think about you know going into something with a long future, I mean that's why I'm so excited about this area, and that's what I would suggest you get your PhD in.
2: Thirty years is a very long horizon. Um, just trying to think back to like 1990, right? Like, what, what if I were alive in 1990, or you know, if I were giving advice in 1990, would I have said internet? Like internet would have been the correct thing to say in 1990. I don't know how many people would have said that. Um, I would say hard neural interface. So hard neural interface being like Neuralink, but like a technology that actually works. Um, So that would be my advice, uh, would be hard neural interfaces.
6: Roasted. Cool. I'll, I'll jump in. That was, that's, an, this is an easy one for me. I put an incredible amount of uh, thought and focus on this question and I vote plasmid engineering at 100%. I think that the gene therapy for the masses and uh, rewriting uh, DNA for millions, billions of people is going to be done through plasmids and not viruses. Uh, also, uh, I think that uh Neural links sound really, really exciting right now, but uh, DNA is already the programming language that we're working with, and it's ultimately much more bio acceptable. And uh, uh, the possibilities for biology and for the conscious experience uh, through DNA change are. Way beyond uh, anyone's capacity to imagine. They're completely unlimited.
7: Yeah,
4: I agree.
6: Yeah, yeah. I agree.
4: DNA yeah. is yeah. the field to be looking at. Um, my problem with hard neural link, for example, is if you do become connected, if you do um, are able to upload um, and then copies are made of you, do you even exist anymore? And um, you know, Great but, problem to uh,
2: have. Great problem to have. Okay.
7: <laughs>
4: <laughs> but, um, but with DNA uh, and everything that goes along with that, such as proteomics um, and whatnot, it is uh, just really starting to, um, even though it's here, it's just starting. And what we will be able to do in 30 years' time will be absolutely unimaginable, um, including
1: hybridization. Michelle, do you have anything to add uh, about that, uh, about what uh, a young person should study in, the term, in terms of, of uh, biology and longevity? I um, mean, Nikita, could you be an oracle for uh, uh, yeah, no, uh, Michelle?
9: No, no. It is clear that there is a lot of work uh, to do to try to understand uh, all those things. We have nearby here a, a full uh, technopole that is dealing with biotechnology, biogenetics and so on. It's really a very, very important aspect. And I may say that the science, this, this site of science is the one where we did the most important uh, improvement in the recent year. And um, there is still a question how this, uh, the result that we will find will go all over the world in the very remote place where uh, nobody knows about all those things. I have been in, in the mountain in Kashmir and there were even children that doesn't go to school that are really in remote area. How, all our knowledge will reach these area around the world. So maybe that we have to be in, this is the, the situation with the COVID and with the, the vaccine, for example. It is important that all the country of the world has the same access to this vaccine and uh, may fight on the same way. But what about the, the gene therapy? Is it possible that it will go all over the world to improve the situation of these people? I don't know. Awesome. Well,
1: uh, Anthony, dude, thank you so much for that question. I feel like that's a great question to wrap up on. Um, to everyone in, in the room, thank you so much uh, for, for being here and please again follow all the panelists on clubhouse and uh, uh, follow me because we do uh, these monthly events um, and we're excited to do more. Um, and, uh, and again, thanks to all the panelists.